Sir Paul Coleridge is a retired high court judge from the UK. He served in the family division, which deals with divorce and children, a prominent man in the UK. After experiencing strong backlash for his uh, conservative views of marriage and family, he retired to focus more on his marriage foundation, which exists to help strengthen marriages in, in family and in turn the UK. Coleridge has a unique perspective uh, on marriage and family because he saw how the breakdown of marriage and family impacts the UK. Several years ago, Coleridge said this, marriage and family breakdown is one of the most destructive scourges of our time. He's right. Marriage and family breakdown is a national security risk. See, when marriage and family break down, society breaks down as well. Coleridge said that the ease of divorce rules had led to unstable families and damaging consequences for kids, parents, and society. Here's the point. Divorce impacts more than couples and kids. Divorce has a ripple effect, which weakens national stability and strength. Isn't it sad that in the UK, a, a child is more likely to have a smartphone than a father at home? Think of the impact of that statistic. Divorce is painful, personal, complex, uh, controversial, even among Christians. Some of your parents divorced. Some of you divorced. Some of your children divorced. We've all been affected by divorce in one way or another. My objective today is not to address every single perspective or a question on divorce. I don't think the text of Malachi warrants that. But I do want to show how divorce, unbiblical marriage, and covenant breaking impacted Israel... And I want to help you connect that to your life. Today may be emotional for some of you. So we must cling to Christ. We must cling to Christ together to find our healing, uh, to find our peace, to find our forgiveness, to find our joy. Considering the prevalence and impact of divorce in our deteriorating society, we need to sound an alarm we need to warn people of the consequences of divorce. And yet we must train people how to have God-glorifying marriages. God-glorifying marriages and families are powerful, powerful. The rallying cry today is quite simple. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to one another. Be faithful to your spouse. Be faithful to your children and guard yourself in your spirit. If we do that, God's name will be glorified and we will experience great blessing in our life, marriage, family, church, nation. Now, I have a tough job this morning because the Hebrew of these verses is very difficult to translate and therefore difficult to interpret and explain. They're tough verses. Uh, but I think you'll catch the overall 
uh, essence of them as we go along, I think that's going to become clear. We've covered uh, two points, two of the arguments that Malachi has given us so far. Now we launch into the third argument, which deals with Israel's faithlessness in three main areas. Number one, relations with each other. Number two, marriage to pagan women. And number three, divorce of the wives of their youth. So the main theme is actually pretty simple to to see, faithlessness. Judah was being faithless. The Hebrew word bagad means faithless or treacherous. It appears 49 times in the Old Testament, and right here in these seven verses, it appears five times, and that's a lot. Uh, So this is is the, the point. Faithless means to betray trust, to break a covenant. Instead of honoring their promises, Israel was breaking covenants and betraying God and one another, which had massive ramifications for their nation. And God hated it, hence his stern rebuke through Malachi. Before we get into the the main thing, let me establish one biblical point that frames the rest of the sermon. Here's, Here's that point. God chose to save and sanctify you in order to glorify the greatness of his name in your life, marriage, family, church, and nation. Malachi begins with God's exclusive covenant love for Israel and God's hatred and covenant rejection of Esau, which vindicated his love for Israel. God would destroy Edom in order to show Israel, his greatness beyond the borders of Israel. When you keep reading, you notice that God was acting in order to make his great name great, magnified in the nations. God had chosen, saved, and sanctified Israel to display his glory in and through them, yet their objectionable worship only countered his purpose and polluted his great name. His anger burned against their objectionable lifestyle, which obscured his grand purpose for choosing, saving, and sanctifying them, namely, the glory of his great name. The glory of his great name. Why did God choose to save and sanctify you through Jesus Christ? Why did he redeem you and set you apart as holy, so that you could do his will. Why would he do this? Isaiah 48, 11 nails it. For my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God doesn't share his glory. He did it to glorify his great name. God chose you, saved you, sanctified you. In order to glorify his great name in and through you, he also graciously empowers you to live for the greatness of his name. So built into our salvation is the means to our faithfulness in which the great name of God is exalted. The ultimate end, the ultimate purpose of each of the following seven points is the exaltation of God's great name. So here are are seven applications straight from the text. Israel failed in all of them. But as the perfect Israel, Jesus succeeded in all of them. He is our faithfulness. 
and he can help us be faithful in every single one of these seven points. Here are seven ways to glorify the greatness of God's name and receive blessings, the blessings of God in your life, marriage, family, church, and nation. Number one, be faithful to God as your father and creator. Have we not all one father? Malachi asked. Indeed they did. God is the father of all men in a creative sense, but not in a redemptive sense. He chose to save and sanctify Israel to be his firstborn son. Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 32, 6, Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Yes, he was. Faithlessness to their father and creator caused Israel's problems. Where do marriage problems begin? Where, where did parenting failures begin? Where does church conflict begin? Where do national crises begin? It all begins with faithlessness to God as father and creator. On the other hand, faithfulness to God as father and creator glorifies God and brings blessings in life, marriage, family, church, and nation. Number two, be faithful to your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an appropriate point for this morning. Be faithful to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Malachi asks in verse 2, Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? God was their loving father. They were brothers and sisters by descent and by spiritual adoption. Yet they treated each other treacherously. Why? Why? They had the same loving father. Covenant of our fathers refers to the Mosaic covenant found in Exodus 19 through 24, which was given to them to cultivate loving and equitable relationships. But instead of treating one another with respect and love, instead of treating one another equitably, they profaned the family rules established by their loving father. The, the, the family of God should be most loving because of who the father is. This applies to the church today. Think of how it grieves a father, how it grieves a mother to watch their children argue and bicker and abuse one another and fight. The conflict of children can bring great shame upon the family. So how will lost people who don't know Jesus Christ how will they know our Father's great love, infinite love, if they see us abusing one another? Our loving Father has given us a set of family rules, a family code to live by. He's given us His beautiful and powerful Holy Spirit so that we can relate to one another with love and respect and equity. We must be faithful to one another. What did Jesus say? Love one another just as I have loved you. That's a tall order. That's amazing love. So here's how, there's just a few things of how we need to treat one another. We must tell the truth. Keep our promises. Serve. Give generously. Forgive. Reconcile. Protect. 
bear burdens, encourage. We are family, and we must be faithful to one another. If you want to honor your father's great name, if you want to receive your father's great favor and blessing, then be faithful to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Our love for each other is a loud endorsement of the love of our father. Be faithful to one another. The next point is a bit wordy, I admit. I wrote the point. It's long, but it's really good. So here we go. Hang tough. Number three. Be faithful to God's word and marry someone who accepts all of God's word as absolute truth and whose greatest joy and pleasure is worshiping and obeying Jesus Christ. If only Israel had done this. Listen to verses 11 and 12. Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Judah was faithless. Judah committed abomination. Judah profaned the sanctuary of the Lord or profaned the holiness of the Lord, which God loves. He profaned, uh, they, they, by profaning, excuse me, the beloved holy place of God, they profaned God's holiness. Along with their abominable worship practices, their intermarriage with pagans who rejected God's word and worshiped foreign gods, and their divorcing to do it profaned his holiness. Listen closely to Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. This is God's law for his people to protect them, to be good for them. Listen. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Now, interracial marriage was not the issue here. Not the issue. The problem was God's people marrying pagan men and women precisely because they would turn them away from him. God's prohibition protected his people against idolatry, apostasy, and ultimately eternal condemnation, destruction. If they ignored God's premarital counseling, it was so good for them to hear this, he would angrily destroy them. See, God is quite interested in having a pure and holy people unstained by the idolatry of the world. God wanted Israel to marry Israel. Sometime read 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 8. It explains how foreign and pagan women, probably very beautiful women, pulled away from God one of the wisest and most powerful men that ever lived. A tragic tale. In their flagrant and unrepentant sin, Judah continued to offer God vain sacrifices. Unrepentant sin kills worship. 
Unrepentant sin kills worship. Who cares about religious rituals? Who cares about going through the motions when the heart is far from God? You see, God would cut off from his people any descendant of a man who continued to do this. Cut off sometimes means death, sometimes banishment. Either way, it's a horrible judgment. One commentary explained it like this. As a penalty, it seems to have been a divine sentence of condemnation that would eventually result in the cessation of one's name from the family of Israel and implied exclusion from peace in the afterlife. That's chilling judgment. Judah's faithlessness in marriage had eternal consequences. Consider 2 Corinthians 6.14. It says this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Is not marriage the most intimate yoke? The most intimate partnership? The most intimate fellowship? The, The Old and the New Testament alike teach that Christians should never even entertain the idea of marrying an unbeliever. Now, the application here is for unmarried Christians, not Christians already married to unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 doesn't suggest somehow that believers divorce their unbelieving spouses, but it is sheer foolishness for a Christian to even consider marrying an unbeliever. So kids, all the kids in here, teenagers, if you are a teenager, please listen up. If you're a young, single adult, please listen closely. You will probably get married someday, probably. If you want to enjoy your marriage, I plead with you to do these three simple things. If you can remember them, please, please listen. Number one. Be faithful to God's word yourself and make Jesus the love of your life. Be faithful to God's word yourself and make Jesus the love of your life. Before you ever get married, before you ever even think of getting married, devote yourself to studying God's word, doing all that it says to do, and love Jesus more than anything. Number two, never Look for a nice guy or girl to marry. Look for a godly guy or girl. Nice is not a fruit of the Spirit. A nice guy or girl, kids, trust me on this, a nice guy or girl can ruin your life. Look for someone who produces the fruit of the Spirit in increasing amounts. Number three, never make theism and church attendance your measure of a godly guy or girl. Never. Instead, I suggest to you two other criteria that you can use in the place of theism and church attendance. Here they are. Number one, do they accept all of God's word as absolute truth? And number two, is their greatest joy and pleasure in their life worshiping Jesus and obeying everything he commands in sacred scripture? So if you find someone to marry who is passionate about the Bible and takes great delight 
in living it out for the glory of God alone because they deeply love and revere Jesus Christ, you are well on your way to an amazing marriage. I have one. You can take my word or you can leave it. All right? But I'm telling you, you want to do what I am saying. And if you don't, the chances of you destroying your life are high and being miserable in marriage. And I'm sure you're all gunning for that. All right. One other thing is assumed in all of that. You must do that too. Okay. Now, some of you older people in here, on a serious note, you didn't do this. And it has been the cause of great pain for you in your life. So my word to you is, enjoy God's forgiveness and grace. Enjoy the fact that he loves you and that you are in union with him. Enjoy the fact that Jesus Christ is your perfect bridegroom. Take God's grace and enjoy it. And if you are married to an unbeliever or even someone who is just not taking Jesus that seriously, professes to be a Christian, just not, not where you think they should be, be faithful to God's word and to your spouse. Live to magnify Jesus in your marriage. Do that. Number four, be faithful in true grief and repentance. Be faithful in true grief and repentance. Verse 13, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. At first glance, it actually seems like Israel is repenting with true grief. But if you keep reading, you realize Israel had no clue that they didn't understand why God wasn't blessing them. Why isn't he receiving our worship? They couldn't make the connection between their treachery, divorce, and intermarriage and God not blessing them. They, 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 it was missing for them. How could they expect God's blessings if they were breaking their marriage covenants, divorcing, and taking pagan wives? God's not going to bless that. He's never going to bless that. They could weep and moan all they wanted, but until they truly repented and trusted God, all was lost for them. They needed to change. Change is what God was after. I love how Dr. McKay put it, but their grief, however great, and their sacrifices, however many, would not accomplish anything if there was an unresolved moral issue between them and God. You should not expect God to bless you if you refuse to deal with the unresolved moral issues in your life. If you want to glorify God's great name, if you want to experience God's great fatherly favor and blessings, then don't just feel sorry about your sin. Oh, I feel so bad that I've done this. Don't, don't stop there. Grieve over it and repent of it. You have to change. And then you've got to trust Christ. You have to trust Christ who will then help you to be faithful, to bring about that change. Faith is believing Jesus will continue to change and strengthen you by his power and grace. Number five, be faithful to your spouse. Be faithful to your spouse. 
In verse 14, Israel asked the question, why does he not? Meaning, why does God no longer regard and accept our offering with delight? Answer, divorce. That's the answer. So here are five key observations from verses 14 through 16. Number one, the Lord was witness to their faithlessness. The Lord was witness to their faithlessness. God knew all the details as an eyewitness. No evidence escaped him. He saw the guilt and he would judge it rightly. Judah had been faithless to the wives of their youth. Oh, think about that. They were shattering the hearts of their high school sweethearts with the hammer of divorce and then they were chasing pagan women in their place. It was heartbreaking and God hated it. He loathed it. They were polluting his name. They were polluting his holy place. He was a witness. Number two, a wife is a companion. God created Eve as a suitable helper for Adam. A husband needs help. Amen? Come on. We need help. Look at us. Can we do this on our own? Of course not. We're pathetic. We need a wife a beautiful and suitable companion, a partner, a friend. Companionship is vital to marriage. Vital. Number three, marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Israel's men were being faithless to their beautiful, God-given companion wives, but also their wives by covenant. Marriage is a covenant bond, a promise an oath-bound agreement. It must not be broken. And when it is, it is a nasty breach of covenant which offends not only the spouse, but offends God. Number four, marriage is a covenant union where husband and wife become one flesh. Verse 15 is one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture to translate and interpret. Precision is tough, although the overarching theme is precise. Are you following me? Here's the theme. Husbands should be faithful to their covenant wives. So whether I understand the Hebrew or not, that point is clear. Husbands should be faithful to their covenant wives. Verse 15 talks about God making husband and wife one with a portion of the spirit in their union. So marriage is not simply just a physical oneness. It is a spiritual oneness. And those two, uh, husband and wife, they answer to God for all of it. Verse 15 likely echoes Genesis 2.24, which says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife And I think you know what's coming. And they shall become one flesh. One flesh. Jesus affirmed this. And then Jesus said this. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God designed marriage to be covenant oneness. Oneness. There is no more intimate union than marriage. Number five. God wants husbands to be faithful to their wives. God wants husbands to be faithful to their wives. The same thing applies to wives, of course. Israel's husbands were betraying their wives, and God told them, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Do not be faithless, he said. Now, the ESV translates verse 16 as, the man who does not love his wife. I think I would prefer it saying this, the man who hates his wife. 
uh, the same word used of God's hatred of Esau. So that stays consistent with earlier in Malachi, which you may remember was covenant rejection. Okay, hatred was covenant rejection. Realize that hatred and divorce are inseparable here in verse 16. Those wives were 100% entitled to their husband's fidelity. But the men hated them and divorced them, and God had consequences for those faithless men. The men covered their garments with violence. Now, I'm not sure what that means, uh, but I know it's not good. And Dr. Ian Duguid understands it like this, so this is one potential thing that I think probably has... a Uh, some merit to it. Such unjustified divorce covers a person's clothing with violence. Metaphorically speaking, this kind of spousal abuse stained their garments, rendering the perpetrator unfit to stand in the presence of the Lord of hosts. I think that's probably right. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment a 1980s groom, some of you might have been that, with a perm and a white tux. You following me? You know that picture? That could be yours. It could be on your mantle or something. But anyway, and now I want you to picture this big wheel Jeep going through a mud puddle right on, and it just just blasts this groom with his perm and his white tux with mud all over him. Makes him just look awful. (laughs) Worse than what? No, I'm not going to go there. That's a picture right there of the dirtiness of the violence soiling these people. They were dirty. They were unacceptable to God because of the way that they were living. Now, sometimes in marriage, your spouse just isn't that exciting. Sometimes the grass seems a whole lot greener on the other side of the fence. Sometimes you might feel like getting up and leaving. But faithfulness to God and your spouse and your covenant is the pathway to your greatest joy. So often couples give up before faithfulness can yield them many blessings. And when I say be faithful to your spouse, I'm not talking about a kind of stay together for the kids kind of faithfulness, if you're following me. True faithfulness is a lot more than unaffectionate duty. True faithfulness includes affectionate love, affectionate selflessness, affectionate sacrifice, affectionate encouragement, affectionate respect, affectionate service, affectionate enjoyment of one another. True faithfulness is delighting to put your spouse ahead of yourself. When you put Jesus first, and then you treat your spouse as Jesus would have you treat them, and as Jesus does, then you're being truly faithful. Now, your spouse may be intolerable at times, maybe a lot of times, but are you giving them many reasons and opportunities to enjoy you, to enjoy you? Divorce is widespread in America. It has slaughtered families. That's not a surprise. It has divided churches. It has weakened our nation. Do you realize how powerful and how helpful your faithfulness to your spouse really is? So many people are counting on you to be faithful to your spouse 
And when you are, God's name is glorified. Other people are strengthened. Society is strengthened. Church is strengthened. We need you to be faithful. Let me say this yet. Verse 16, very difficult to translate. And some English translations have something like this. For I hate divorce, says the Lord. And that's true. He does. And if that's what Malachi meant, it doesn't change much in this passage. God still hated what Israel was doing and was calling them to repentance and faithfulness. Number six, big point number six. Be faithful to raise your children to worship and obey Jesus Christ. Be faithful to raise your children to worship and obey Jesus Christ. If you do this, you will be actively participating in building healthy relationships, healthy families, healthy churches, and a healthy nation. Failure to do this point and all the other points is why we see so much brokenness in our society. If godly marriages, just think about this, and families were the norm in America, the overwhelming norm, our nation would look completely different than it does. It wouldn't be a perfect nation, but it would be so much better, so much safer, so much more successful. Look at verse 15 again. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Why does God make a husband and his wife one? What's he after in covenant oneness? Well, we could say several things, but right at the top of the list, at least in the top few, is godly offspring. Why did God tell Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply? Why? Because God was creating a people for himself to glorify him by enjoying him forever. Adam and Eve were not enough. Adam and Eve were not the end plan. God had a plan to create from them a multitude of passionate worshipers whose primary joy was to give glory to God. The idea is not simply offspring. The idea is godly offspring. The godly is paramount. Marriage is meant to be the catalyst for generations of passionate worshipers of God who delight in Jesus Christ and live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Marriage exists unto that end. If Israel's men were divorcing their God-fearing wives and in passion taking pagan wives, how would that impact their children and the coming generations? The the children would now be, in many cases in Israel, conflicted between stepmom's religion and divorced mom and dad's religion. Just this awkwardness of which way do I go? Do do, do I follow Yahweh or or do I follow these pagan gods? And I'm, I'm seeing confliction in my family. How do I make sense of this? See, the purpose of faithfulness in marriage is to create an environment of teaching God's ways to the next generation. Those pagan moms would spend a lot of time with those dear little kids and they would train them away from God. Divorce has massive ramifications for the propagation of the gospel. See, the family is a mini church. It should reflect what God is doing in the world, redeeming people through the preaching of the gospel so more and more people worship him alone. God unites a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage to propagate the human race, absolutely, but even greater, to propagate the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. Dr. Duguid notes this, these divorces in which wives from within the covenant community were being sent away to make room for the daughters of foreign gods were tearing apart the sacred fabric of the community and making void its purpose as the context to raise the next generation in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Right. Absolutely right. Our culture is so distorted, has so distorted marriage, that hardly anyone realizes that God intends marriage to lead to godly children. And divorce undermines God's purpose greatly. Our culture is so distorted family that hardly anyone realizes that God has given the responsibility to moms and dads to raise their children in the Lord. Not teachers, Not youth pastors, not mentors, all of which can be good, but all of which take a back seat to mom and dad. Who's training your kids to follow Jesus Christ? You need to. You need to. And that is why you must be faithful to your spouse. Never underestimate how powerful and helpful your faithfulness to your spouse and your vision to raise godly offspring with them can be for your children and many coming generations. Israel ignored this. They ignored God on this. And it was wrecking their holiness, wrecking their nation, and it was polluting God's great name. Is our nation so different? We are crumbling Because the points of this sermon are being ignored by the populace. We're crumbling. Look around our nation. We are in trouble, big time. Last point, number seven. Guard your spirit. Guard yourself in your spirit. Guard yourself in your spirit. In addition to warning Israel not to be faithless, twice God pleaded with them, guard yourselves in in your spirit. In other words, keep a close watch on your heart, keep a close watch on your mind, keep a close watch on your affections, protect yourself against the plots and attacks of Satan, fight off sin and temptation, and be ever so careful to keep your covenants. Guard yourself in the spirit, and may, and may I add, by the spirit, by the spirit. If we are to guard ourselves in our spirit, what better way than the whole armor of God? We need the belt of righteousness, or the belt of truth. We need the breastplate of righteousness. We need the shield of faith. We need the helmet of salvation. We need the sword of the spirit. The armor of God equips us to stand guard, to guard ourselves in our spirit. Saints, God has saved you, and God has sanctified you so that you would, by his spirit now, Do these seven things for his glory and your greatest joy. If you do them, just understand that you will be radically blessed, but beyond that, so many people will be blessed by you and what you do. It's not just about you. People like your spouse will be blessed. People like your kids will be blessed. People like brothers and sisters in Christ here at church will be blessed. People in your nation, your neighbors will be blessed. And, and many people these days are talking about the healing our nation. How, how do we rebuild some of this and healing? I just want to say, are these seven things not a good starting point? 
I mean, is this not the roadmap for national healing? How about we focus on this as a nation and see where it takes us? Listen, this sermon can be funneled down into one simple application. Be faithful and guard yourself in your spirit. That's it. Be faithful. Guard yourself in your spirit. People are counting on you to be faithful to God. They're counting on you to be faithful to your spouse. They're counting on you to be faithful to your kids. They're counting on you to be faithful to your church. Will you do it? Will you do it? And, and there are a lot of people hoping that you will, watching and waiting for you to do it so that God's great name would be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for, for a tough word today. I hope, God, that I have accurately represented what Malachi was trying to communicate, what you were trying to communicate. Now, I, I was trying to give a lot of, of application today, of the truths that we find, but I pray, God, that we look at the text. It has various applications. I just chose one direction, God, but your word, something bad was happening in Israel. And we can look at Malachi and say, boy, God is upset, and he is calling them to repentance and calling them to a better way, a way of much more joy and prosperity and safety as your people, as the nation that you, have cho- that you chose to put your people within. And so now it, it, it's, it's not about the nation of Israel. It's about your people. It's about your church. It's about Jew and Gentile who have been united to Christ by faith, and that is your people. It's not about a nation. It's about your covenant people. And so there are so great parallels to what happens inside the church of Jesus Christ. We mistreat one another. We divorce easily, not for biblical justifications, but just too easily. We just break covenant. And then, and, and then we take wives and husbands who don't love Jesus. They're not following him, and we think that that's okay because we're lonely. No, God, no, you will not bless us if that's how we're living. And God, I pray that you would guide us by your truth and your word to live out your commandments. God, I know that there are divorced people here today and those who have been really, really hurt and wounded by divorce. And I pray that they see divorce as a broader issue than Malachi. There are other places that answer some of the questions I have not, God. I just pray that they that they can enjoy your grace and your forgiveness and your healing and your joy no matter what pain they came through because you redeem all kinds of situations, nasty things. In fact, you do some pretty amazing things when everything looks bleak and grim. And so I just pray for those divorced people and those who have been impacted by it deeply that, God, you will help them to see your mercy and grace and enjoy it and then help them to go to Scripture to answer some of the questions they may have about maybe their past or maybe what they're thinking right now or, or whatever. Uh, God, we need you to speak to us through your word. God, guard the marriages here. Please protect Jerusalem, church. Help us to have not, not just marriages that stay together for the kids or stay together because we don't want the social stigma of divorce or whatever, but that we stay together to exalt your great name and to show how awesome you are and that we would actually enjoy one another, enjoy our spouse because you've given them to us as a precious gift. 
I pray for the one who might have an unbelieving spouse. And they yearn for them to be saved, but it's just not happening yet. Would you give them hope? Would you give them confidence? Would you give them uh, love and submission and respect and, and help them to take the gospel to their spouse by their lifestyle, but also through their words? Use them to reach and convert their spouse. We pray for these things, God. They're very dear to us, very close to our hearts. So God, help us to be faithful and to guard ourselves by our spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.